Hi, I'm Ed Romaine, the Chief Marketing Officer of Cargo Global, and this is Mobilizing Culture, a new podcast exploring the ever-changing world of advertising and how new waves of mobile technology and digital advertising impacts the human mind both positively and negatively. On this episode of Mobilizing Culture, we're joined by advertising visionary and best-selling author, Andrew Essex. This is Andrew Essex, and I am the chief executive of Tribeca Enterprises, the parent company of the Tribeca Film Festival. Andrew is not afraid of expressing his strong opinions on the evolution of the advertising industry. Having helped start ad powerhouse Droga 5 and run several leading magazines, including Details, Andrew's taken on a new challenge of late with the Tribeca Film Festival. He's trying to reinvent the way consumers interact with the festival. conceived before Netflix, <laughs> iTunes, Amazon Prime, and now there is no shortage of content at home. The question is, what gets people out of the house? So the festival is emphasizing the event more than ever, the liveness of it. He is also trying to improve the festival's integration of brand sponsorships. The old-fashioned model was sponsorship. That's as broken as traditional advertising, in my humble opinion. Asking a brand to write you a check to have its logo on a step and repeat, there's really no ROI, there's no value exchange. So we've been more thoughtful about what our product is. And that product is the intersection of access, experience, and content. And now we help brands integrate into the event in a native way. And we also produce content for them. Today I'm speaking to Andrew about his views on three main topics. The shift in advertising over the past few decades, the future of technology as it relates to our industry, and the continued importance of brand image. We will also speak about his book, The End of Advertising, which I have not been able to put down since my honeymoon. To start, we will discuss the current shift in the advertising industry and why Andrew believes in abandoning data-driven advertising to focus more on an idea-driven creative style. Tell us why the advertising industry sucks. Or got, let me rephrase that, ourselves. why it's going to get better. Why it's going to get okay, better. Okay, sure. So I think the most radical thing that I believe is that the last 50 years were a historical anomaly. 60 Minutes is called a news magazine, and there's a reason for that. When TV came along, and radio before that, they were like Facebook or Snapchat. People did not know how to monetize them. The idea was achieve audience with this new technology and then figure out what to do. So one looked to the newspaper and the idea of an adjacency. You had something and you would put something next to it. And that was the reigning model for newspapers, magazines, radio, and television, with a few exceptions. Other people tried to underwrite shows, GE Theater, Mutual Momo's Wild Kingdom, but interruption won because, as with magazines, you could put more things in there. But the problem is 50 years later, we have this unprecedented economy of abundance. So much stuff, so much stuff, so much noise. 467 scripted TV shows alone right now. There's no room for anything that's adjacent. So we have actually evolved ourselves into obscurity. We are on the side where no one wants to be. Now, a few people are experimenting with being right in the middle of the feed, which is the smarter place to be. But Mm -hmm. if you're on the side, if you are adjacent, you're essentially invisible. Mm -hmm. The good news is that means you have to now outthink rather than simply outspend. You can't buy your way into relevance. You have to actually produce something that people want to see. And that's good news for the planet. Do you think the pendulum swings back the other way with the content piece? Do you think there's... Do you think there's such a thing as too much content? I already think there is. Yes, 100%. Yes. So that's why it's a Darwinian shakeout. You and I have magazine 
DNA in our blood. I love magazines. So do I. I had the privilege of working at a magazine called Details, which doesn't exist anymore. But there were many, many men's magazines. And now with Rodell and American Media, there are other men's magazines being consolidated. You could argue that the world didn't need nine to Mm -hmm. 15 men's magazines. Same thing with all this content. There will be a Darwinian correction. And the best stuff will win. And best is not about Shakespearean excellence. It's just about stuff that's good. Bad will sink and good will scale. Do you think magazines are dead? I do not. I think mediocre, irrelevant magazines are dead. Mm-hmm. What do you think the magazine industry continues to do that isn't working? What, what do they need to do? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, they need to understand the platform on which they operate and what it does that no one else can do and to not try to copy digital platforms that can do things so much better. So the first thing is that you hold it in your hands and it's paper. So paper is a central experience. Why do magazines feel the need to jam in a zillion little pieces? Why not do one piece for 20 pages? I think that they need to go more into print porn. That's the place to be. Incredible photography, rich paper stock, world-class art direction and writing. It will become a niche, but an important niche, and it cannot be replicated by other platforms. Do you still read paper products? I sure do. You do? And digital products, I assume. Yes. Right. Yes. By the way, I'm militant about trying to get rid of the word digital. I used it myself. Well, what isn't digital? <laughs> but when you're talking about print, I guess that's not. So that's not, right. It's the thing that you can hold in your hand that doesn't require an outlet. Mm-hmm. You also talk a lot in the book about your son. Yes. Who doesn't know a world before ad blocking in some ways. Yeah. First of all, has his experience changed? And do you think he will ever be affected by advertising in a way that would prompt him to either be loyal to a brand or want to purchase a brand? Yes. So what's interesting about that book is I have a son and a daughter. My son is now 15. and You look very young. <laughs> it's uh, the monkey urine injections. <laughs> Stings a little. Yeah. Um, he is now out in the world traveling and is consuming media without adult supervision. So he is starting to see things out of home in particular. He's seeing advertising in the places where one can't avoid it. But he knows how to avoid it, and he was raised in a world in which it wasn't just part of the uh, table stakes. I have a daughter who's 10 who is not out and about in the world. She's literally never seen an ad. The only exception was the Olympics. That was the one thing that we watched together that I could not protect her from as it relates to ads. And she was appalled by it. Why was she appalled by it? Because she could not understand why the gymnastics was being interrupted by the stuff she didn't ask to see that went on and on and on that wasn't interesting. And given any option, she would have avoided it. Mm -hmm. This is the essence of what I'm talking about. This is a fundamental shift in consumer behavior. And I don't care what metrics you have. If you're annoying someone and they hate you, you're not going to sell your merch to them. That's exactly correct. I wish everybody would listen to you. Thank you. No one's listening. So tell everyone what your thoughts around Super Bowl advertising are in, in a nutshell. Well, the, the advertising is the only industry where one day a year you can count on excellence, where everyone goes to the well and pulls out something magnificent. But it's a bizarre inverted model, which suggests that 364 days of the year you produce irrelevant mediocrity. I just don't understand why we don't shoot for that level of excellence throughout the entire year. Then you have the question of whether this model is sustainable. You start seeing some erosion of NFL ratings. It is the only platform, I'm talking about live sports, that continues to perpetuate a model 
where interruption is baked into the cake. And people expect it, actually look forward to it. It's like water cooler talk, as you referenced. Yeah, I, I, they certainly look forward to it on, on Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if they look forward to it on the fourth week of the season. I, I just wonder how long can live sports sustain an endless series of interruptions where, in a world in which everywhere else it's going away. Mm-hmm. It's a massive anachronism. It's a paradox. Have you seen recent examples as a consumer that you were impressed by from an advertising perspective? All the time. All the time. I just saw a, a, a great little spot for Spectrum, which is the new name of Time Warner Cable. It was a kind of attack ad on DirecTV. Mm-hmm. Just very clever, amusing, um, werewolf, a dwarf, and a, other creepies playing poker. Just just clever, amusing, enough to actually engage me for two seconds. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't hate advertising at all. I love advertising. I hate bad advertising. So when someone just writes something that's clever, does something entertaining, adds value to my life, provides a service, some utility, I applaud that. Do you think that there are places that consumers should not be advertised to? The mobile phone is an example. I don't think there's any place that people should not be advertised to. I think each place, each context has its own rules. And if you're not contextually relevant, you're going to annoy people. So the phone, obviously, is a very small surface. There is very little room for anything that's superfluous. So mobile pop-ups, branded tweets, there's a certain rage that sets in, and I think the consequences are underestimated. Yeah, we did a research study with Nielsen that looked at units and people's body temperature actually goes up when they are served an interstitial ad. That's fantastic. I wish you could socialize that data. <laughs> yeah, we should, we tried. What do you think of out-of-home these days? For anyone who doesn't know what out-of-home advertising is, what, what is it? It means advertising that is not in the home. So that's traditionally billboards, posters, anything that isn't on an existing media platform. Subway signage, et cetera. I think out-of-home is extremely undervalued. It's all about receptivity. If one in 10 Americans are deploying ad-blocking technology and OTT is erasing the 30-second spot, for the most part, except live sports, where can you not avoid advertising? Mm -hmm. However, I took the F train in this morning, so I was a little late for our interview, and I live in Dumbo. There's a station that has literally no ads in it. It's incredible. Lost opportunity for inventory. The MTA apparently put out an RFP recently to put all new signage throughout the entire subway system. When we have incredibly responsive screens that are able to produce more contextually relevant advertising, out of home will go to the next level. Mm -hmm. So that's, to me, the place to be experimenting. But think about how much better my subway commute could have been if a brand was thinking about how to make my life better. For sure. I recently saw Brooks Brothers had taken over a subway and and done the inside of it to resemble the interior of a store. And it was so simple. But they made the dirty chairs that you're sitting on look mahogany, and it just felt really elevated and cool. They actually did the seats as well? They did everything. See, so that's taking the domination idea to the next level. And I think that's brilliant because, but the question was, was the train still late and on air conditioned? And was everything else suboptimal? No, not in this instance. Okay. But, but why not? So, uh, again, I, I don't want to belabor this point, but Dumbo is an interesting little case study, right? So, tremendous amount of demographic diversity, lots of digital hipsters. Chaconis. Right, there you go. <laughs> One subway stop. Why isn't a brand completely fixing the entire station? West Elm is right there. West Elm should just do the entire station and take a meaningful percentage of their marketing budget to do that. Mm-hmm. Tons of PR, people would be so gratified. And 
they will sell more cell phones as a result. It doesn't seem like brain surgery. Did you find at the end of your tenure at Droga that you were hearing more and more that a creative idea sort of needed to be anchored with data? Did it stifle the process? It didn't, it didn't stifle the process. We, we always advocated for fantastic strategy, world-class account management, the importance of insights driven by quality data. It's just that that's not a solution. It's just another weapon in your arsenal. So, of course, you want to look at the data. You want to find that needle in a haystack that leads you to an insight that produces something magnificent. But that is not an idea. That's a tool. So only creative people have creative ideas. And if you don't put that at the top of the food chain, you are doomed to make something that no one wants to see. Mm-hmm. Andrew is a visionary in the advertising industry. And when he speaks about the future of technology and how it will impact us, people listen. One of the things I've been fascinated with as late is driverless cars Mm. uh, because people keep talking about them and I can't see it at scale. For me, there's also like when we talk about what's the next sort of disruption, there's also like an inherent laziness in every disruption. So for me, I think advertisers and marketers can't wait for the driverless car because they just see this empty theater that they can just talk to people in. Do you feel like that's the next thing people are going to be investing their dollars in? And if not, what? Yeah, I think that that is clearly the next frontier, and there are already people laying claim to the pipe. So, do you know the company Intersection? Yes. All right, so they're doing something quite interesting, essentially wiring the city with this high-speed Wi-Fi, South Korean speed, one gigabyte, these nodes all around town, which enable you to have 24-7 high-speed Wi-Fi in a city. When that connects to the back end of Uber, you can see how you could have wireless livery. And that's what's going to happen. It's not going to be on the highway, you sitting in a a Tesla, letting it drive itself here. It's going to be a mobile fleet that you have access to, Mm -hmm. mobility, driverless mobility on demand. So who controls the pipe into that unit? And what do you want to consume while you're sitting in a Prius that's driving itself? Because taxi TV is kind of annoying. Yeah, but so so that's that's a perfect example. So that exists already, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like the future, and yet it's here. That's the interesting part. Taxi TV is the embodiment of really shitty mm-hmm. programming, lazy. What would be more useful in the vehicle? What would be contextually relevant? What do you want to consume in a taxi? What choice do you have as opposed to this third-rate crap that you'd never choose to watch if you had any other options? Mm-hmm. So in a vehicle where you can't drive and there's no taxi driver, the structure of the form factor will be important. But will the rooftop be the screen? Will the windshield be the screen? What will you want? Will there be an opportunity to be couponed as you arrive at the Starbucks on the corner Mm -hmm. to get uh, information on fresh cherries available at Whole Foods as you pull up? I think whoever cracks that is going to be in the leadership position. Mm -hmm. What are the other offshoots of that besides Uber as an example? Like if the whole city is wired with that sort of Wi-Fi, what else happens? Well, then at some point the need for a device in your pocket goes away and you can have screens on demand. I think we'll look back at pictures of ourselves looking at a a small little vertical screen and the way we look back at pictures of people wearing hats, they'll just be ubiquitous access to information. It's like that famous photo of the Pope where everyone 40 years ago is taking a picture with their camera and then 40 years later they show everyone holding a phone. What's in 40 years? Right, exactly. Do you think it's AI? Do you think you're surrounded by an AI interface? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea that you might be able to, to remove from your pocket a foldable screen that can open up and have all kinds of rich imagery. I think that the, the, what's going to change next are the form factors. 
Mm -hmm. And we're going to get out of this forced verticality. And it may even be skin as the next surface. Mm -hmm. That's terrifying. (laughs) Do you think that VR is going to stick? Tribeca, I believe, is arguably the world's best curator of VR. We had 31 discrete pieces at the festival in 2017 from Steven Spielberg, Catherine Bigelow, Penrose, Baobab, within all the great studios. That's amazing. Yeah. and um, You mean VR films? VR films from shorts to features across every platform. All the hardware, we're agnostic about it. I think the problem with VR right now is that it's in that perilous early stage. And there are is not enough great content, and the user experience is generally execrable. There's nothing worse than putting on a pair of goggles, cardboard, yeah, and then but 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 watching uh, then 15 people behind you staring at a dude spinning around with a pair of goggles on. You look like an, a douchebag. Mm-hmm. So, who's going to crack the UX? Purpose-built spaces, incredible interactive experiences. But I think VR and AR are 100% here to stay, and it's just a little early. So it's going to be an artist that delivers that pivotal moment where people see what's possible. And it may be the entertainment industry, it may be the porn industry in all seriousness, or it may be you and me just doing something in a garage. But it, it's definitely not a fad. It's just, it's just premature. What do you think the porn industry is doing so well? I wouldn't know. Yeah, but, <laughs> same. Um, uh, I hear that they've traditionally innovated in, in a variety of different ways. So I would just look to them as a bellwether for what's going to happen in terms of interfaces and experiences. It's so interesting, actually. I never thought of that industry as being innovative. Mobile video. Um, it makes sense and, now that you're yes, saying it. Yeah, yeah. So if you think about things like what we used to call social networks and VR, the porn industry will be able to replicate the experience um, uh, uh, the virtual experience of having intercourse with a, a, a virtual human being, and we will never leave the house. Yeah. And, and, and we'll, we will see that Wally was, in fact, a documentary. You just reminded me of that Steven Spielberg. I, I believe Steven Spielberg is directing a film called Ready Player One. Yes, of course. Have you read the book? I have not, but I'm going to now. <laughs> The reason I bring it up is yes. because the whole premise of the book is that no one leaves the house, yes. and the world has sort of crumbled around everyone, but everyone prefers to be in the interface. Right. I actually could see it oh, happening. Absolutely. It's happening to me right now but, with Trump. Yeah. But, but the irony of that is that's why live experiences, I think, are super important. Experiential platforms where groups come together to simultaneously enjoy something are going to be much more important in the future because there'll be no reason to leave the house. Yeah. We had um, we had Natalie Mombio on who runs innovation at Samsung and she argued the same thing. She thinks that these sort of collective enhanced experiences are sort of the next frontier of messaging. I love that term, by the way, collective enhanced experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So the CEE becomes the thing. Right? Exactly right. So I've noticed, it, particularly over the last 10 years, that the acceleration of the disruption is just so intense, right? It's every day there's a new platform, there's a new channel, there's a new technology that we're supposed to try. Do you see the speed continuing to accelerate or do you see it slowing down at any point? I, I think it, it continues to accelerate until there's some kind of big bang. Mm-hmm. I think we're, we're heading towards some kind of massive disruption in the business. Similar to Shiseido creative director Doug Jacobs' opinion from episode one, Andrew believes that branding should be a top priority for any company in the increasingly commoditized world we live in. Do you think image marketing is important? I'll give you an example. We've looked at Casper mattresses a lot. Casper actually has over a dozen 
competitors in the city on demand mattresses. But part of the reason that Casper's been successful is because they sort of started with a specific sort of cartoon-looking image that you started to associate with their brand. I sort of wonder how important it is to associate a brand with that. Yeah. With that something. I, I love that question. Basically, you're, you're asking me about the value of brand. I am. And uh, there are many people who yeah. think that brand is idiocy, right? that, that many companies waste too much money on branding. I think the exact opposite. And Casper proves that point, that brand is the thing that distinguishes one commodity from another. So a mattress is a mattress. You could argue their, their IP is superior, right? But the brand is the thing that people really remember. They proved that you can create a brand out of whole cloth, as did Warby and Harry's and Into the Gloss and many, many others. And that that makes that heartbeat move faster. Mm -hmm. Casper, that's cool. And they have a brilliant channel strategy and they probably had fantastic data and insights driven by that data, but they are world-class branders. And uh, Brian Morrissey at Digiday hypothesized a world in which on Alexa, because of Amazon's sort of white labeling, you can just say soap toothpaste, and you won't need a brand. And that's probably true for things that are so clearly commodities um, and, and products that ultimately win just one price. But Casper proved that if you build something that represents some kind of purpose, some kind of vision, people will remember it and reward you with a purchase. You just reminded me of the buttons that Amazon has for like the washing machine, yeah. like the Tide button. And actually, the Tide button so much more exciting than if it just said detergent, right? But that's because you are susceptible to the power of brand. Mm -hmm. But if there's just detergent and it's a dollar cheaper and you're somewhere in the Midwest, it might not be as compelling. So you'll also see a divide, not so much a digital divide, but a divide between those that are, respond to brand and think that Audi is more compelling than Hyundai because it's got years of badge value, when the product might actually be closer than one might think. Do you think the power of brand varies across region? Absolutely. It, it's, it's definitely tied to socioeconomic issues. You see that thing about Steve Mnuchin's wife who got in trouble for hashtagging a bunch of brands that she was wearing when she got off a U.S. plane. Mm -hmm. I, some of us are more hype beastie than others and respond to that brand. And that's why those brands are able to extract a premium. Yeah. That's so interesting, actually. I almost would argue that people in, let's say, less fortunate socioeconomic situations would have as strong of an affinity toward brands that maybe just aren't the same brands that you and I might think are interesting. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, like Marlboro Reds, as an example. I was going to the cigarettes, <laughs> but also if you think about uh, fast food or quick service restaurants. Yeah. You know, so how, how does Burger King compete with McDonald's? If the prices are flat, well, the product, there is some distinction there, but and the, the menu may evolve, but will brand make the difference? Does anyone feel a particular allegiance to one of those brands versus the other? In the Civil War era, Americans were pretty stinky, and you know, we didn't know to brush our teeth so much, and we didn't wash that often. But there was soap. You could get soap at the, the, you know, the apothecary, but it was just called soap. And um, second-generation Procter & Gamble heir was in church one day thinking about a new product that they had and heard a psalm that used the word ivory and thought, okay, ivory soap. And this soap used vegetable oil instead of animal fat and it floated as a result. They just thought they had something special and it was really the first brand that came to someone 
while they were daydreaming <laughs> in a cathedral. He wrote it down on a piece of paper on a napkin, and it's never changed since. So from a commodity to a brand that stood for something. It's an amazing story to me. Do you think to be a successful brand today, you have to be a commodity? Or do you have to have uh, sort of an unbreakable utility and need? I think you have to have an unbreakable utility and need and an incredibly powerful brand that's, that helps you from being a commodity. Because if you're just a commodity, you can always be undercut. Andrew's book, The End of Advertising, takes a candid look at the current state of the ad industry and provides suggestions for brands to reinvent the way they think about marketing. Admittedly, I read it on my honeymoon a few weeks ago because nothing screams R&R like reading about the death of your industry. My husband was making fun of me because I was walking around the pool reading your book because <laughs> I wanted to be prepared it's the for the ultimate this. honeymoon read. He's like, he like Snapchatted me and was like, look at my loser husband who's in advertising reading about advertising. Can I see that, please? Yeah, it's amazing. It's fantastic. So what prompted you to write the book? Which has gotten a lot of coverage, by the way. Yeah. I saw you had a nice feature in the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been very fortunate in that regard. What prompted me to write the book? The honest answer is I had some time off. You so missed advertising. I, I missed advertising. <laughs> I, I wanted to conclude a chapter, but I really just wanted to do a very different book, which was about the origin story of two of the most important brands on the planet by the same three dudes in the same two-week window in 1898. And that's, of course, aspirin and heroin, which were invented by Bayer. But we pursued that. I was fascinated by that. Good, fact, I'm so actually. glad. I read it aloud after my husband made fun of me in the pool for reading. See? It. I said, "But you won't believe that." Yeah. <laughs> so, see, it is actual summer reading. Yeah, yeah. So you can learn about smack. Tell tell people that haven't read the book yet a little bit about that. Sure. So there's a company called Bayer, which everyone has heard of, and they're responsible for one of the most famous consumer packaged goods on the planet, if not the most famous, Bayer aspirin, and that was invented in 1898, as I said. But Bayer had a, a laboratory where they were trying to synthesize product from organic materials. And there were three dudes, not unlike Steve Jobs and Forstall and the other dude, and, you know, kind of founding core members, all in their 30s, by the way, who also synthesized the active ingredient in opium. And they made something called heroin, which was marketed as a cough medicine. And was it heroin as we know it? As heroin? we know it. I'll mm -hmm. show you pictures. This is 100% true. It was available at your local drugstore. It's insane. And it cured cough really well. It still does. And uh, they pushed it instead of aspirin. It was a revolutionary product. They um, anticipated huge growth. And then a few other things started happening. And it took them. It actually took them a number of years it to get it off the shelf. Eight. Yeah. No, well, no, it took eight, possibly nine years to be pulled. Wow. Did you have to do a lot of research for the book? And and was a lot of it based on your own sort of, you know, inklings of things or interests in things? Is yeah. that how it started? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I, you have to, if you're in this business, read everything. So I was in the habit of just constantly absorbing the trades. The Times, the Journal, all the new media properties. I mean, there's no shortage of fantastic coverage, and I'm, I'm in debt to all those reporters. And then I did some historic reading. I went to a couple of museums. I, I tried to really immerse myself in the history and in the in the future. How long did it take? All told, it took about a year. Okay. Did you pitch an agent first? I already had one. You because, had one. Yes, I. From my publishing days, I actually co-written or ghost-written three other books. I love that. I didn't know that. Yes. Most recently, Nile Rogers' book. Okay. An upside-down story of family, destiny, and disco, which I highly recommend. It came out just before... Are these all nonfiction efforts? 
Yes, one of them. The first one is about the story of the globe, theglobe.com, which I encourage everyone to read, the first social network and at the time the biggest public offering ever. And then one with the co-founder of Barney's, Gene Pressman. And then the Nile Rogers book, as I said, which came out just before the big Daft Punk hit. Yeah, yeah. And what has the feedback on the book been so far from people around the industry? One or two death threats. <laughs> um, well, you do reference, I mean, you reference the Ogilvy's. I mean, you talk a lot about some of these founding fathers of our giant brands in the, in the United States. Yeah. I, I got a nice note from someone saying, great way to sell more advertising by, can I curse? Yeah. By shitting on advertising. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, the title should have been the end of bad advertising, but that's just less clickable. But it really is about elevating quality yeah. as a business imperative. Yeah. I actually thought one of the things you did really well, I mean this as a compliment actually, is that you kind of just stated sort of the obvious, right? You were, you were like, we're struggling for a reason because because we suck. Yeah. Right? <laughs> sort of the, the light at the end of the tunnel really is that you, you believe creativity will be the salient sort of element that uh, helps us move past this current phase. 100%. And it's a very important subtle distinction that I want to make here. Since 1950, ad guys have been fighting for the importance of creativity. And of course, creativity matters. But it is now a business imperative. That's the distinction. So it's not just because it's cool, it's because it's the only thing that moves the merch. And how has our data overload sort of impacted our ability to be creative? It's a tool, it's not a canvas. So it has impacted us in a sense that it made people too focused on quantitative issues. And the pendulum is now swinging back to qualitative issues. Where do people find the book and where do people find you? Andrew Essex at Twitter and at bookstores and Amazon. You had great placement at the Strand, by the way. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Excellent. When I went in, they were like, it's right there. Great. Yeah. Front and center. It's amazing what a $20 bill will get you. (laughs) I'm very appreciative of your time. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks for coming on. And I wish you all the best. Success. If you haven't checked it out already, definitely read The End of Advertising, now available wherever books are sold. And if you like this podcast, please remember to rate it and review it wherever you're listening next week on Mobilizing Culture. You have to be thinking about what those consumers want first and not always what the brand thinks they should say.